This one still goes on and off backward than the one I used to have. You can teach a dog, an old dog, new tricks, but it takes a while. Anyway, uh, George seemed to be in pretty good spirits overall yesterday afternoon. Uh, he's, of course, he's on some drugs for pain for that broken leg and and all, so he's he's kind of in and out of uh, sleep and being awake and so on, but. He did express his desire to be here with us and ask that everybody uh, know that he loves us and he wants to be here and he's sorry he can't be. And uh, He's in kind of a tough situation there with a broken leg and hold up and having people have to wait on him, but uh, it's the best place for him, I believe, right now. He can't really be at home and take care of himself and he's liable to fall again. So he's better off right there. If he can just learn to use his phone. He got that new smartphone and it's considerably smarter than he is so far. Uh, mine thinks it's smarter than me. It just doesn't know. But uh, he hasn't figured out how to dial in. And I... I... I his phone is new to me, too, but it's, it's, they're all about the same. You just have to figure which button. But in any case, uh, I showed him how to dial the main call-in number, and then that he's supposed to put the PIN number in. Well, the screen goes dark after you put the main number in, and it comes on, so you have to hit the keyboard. Then it comes up, and you dial the PIN. I showed him three times. But I could see there was a mental block there. He he didn't think he could do it, and he was going to prove that was so. <laughs> so. So it was kind of a situation where he never did get it, so I doubt he's on today unless he got one of the attendants there to, to dial it in for him. I hope so. Or that he finally figured it out. He, if he gets a where his mind's clearer, he might be able to do that. But with the painkillers and medicines he's on, it's, it's hard for him to concentrate. So anyway, he wanted me to let you know he's thinking of us. And I told him we were thinking of him too. Now for tomorrow, we have planned, instead of going clear up to Zion, uh, which we normally do either at the feast and sometimes in the spring, uh, it's getting so busy up there that there's hardly room to use the park. And they don't care if we're there. Uh, if it's time to mow, they mow anyway, you notice. So, uh, we thought maybe Maxwell Park up here, it's kind of on this side of Zion and is really part of it. Uh, same mountains and everything. But Maxwell Park is, uh, through Hilldale and on up the canyon. I think you all pretty well know where that is, where people go to get water all the time. Not all of us, but some do. Uh, but if you go up, into the canyon, uh, you'll come to the place where there's a park area on the right and kids' toys and we fill the water. And, but if you go on up a little ways to, on the left, there's some areas up there with tables and chairs and uh, barbecue. Uh, we're going to get there either tonight or early tomorrow to be sure we have a place, uh, one of the three places that look like would work good for us. 
So, uh, I think we'll be good up there. And it's actually fairly private once you get past that busier area down just a little bit lower. And so we'll have a picnic there. Uh, with the one o'clock services we're having here today, that gives the weather a chance to, to catch up. But the, the, uh, forecast is for 72 degrees, uh, five mile an hour wind, just a little breeze, and sunshine. So it'll be nice if we can go up and enjoy that tomorrow at one o'clock. If for some reason the weather people miss the mark terribly, uh, we can always opt to stay here and do as we usually do. So, uh, doesn't take long to get word around. But if the weather's good, we're planning on up to, going up to Maxwell Park. Now before sermon, we are again blessed with some special music. This one's entitled Passover Hallelujah, and it is sung by a duo of Christy and Daphne.
Thank you very much. That was very inspiring to me. As I've said this many times, I, after inspiring special music, I feel like just getting up and going home because what's to say? It's uh, beautiful. But instead, let's go to Leviticus 23. This is a special day in some respects, even within the Days of Unleavened Bread. Uh, Leviticus 23, it talks about, first of all, the Sabbath day in verse 3, uh, the weekly Sabbath. And then it goes on down to explain that we are to keep the Passover, which we did a few days ago, on the evening of the 14th. And then there are, after that Passover day, six more days of unleavened bread to follow, and then a holy convocation or a holy day, a feast on the last day of unleavened bread, the seventh. But then we come on down to verse 9. It says, Speak to the children, in verse 10 really, of Israel, and say to them, When you become into the land which I give you, 
You shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. So they were, this year that they were coming in uh, to the promised land was the year that uh, Moses was speaking of here in Leviticus 23. So when they came into the land, uh, they didn't have any uh, first fruits or anything that they had planted in the wilderness. So when they came in, uh, the land became theirs. And God said to take of what was there. Joshua explains that uh, they were to eat the old corn and so on, but they were to do some things first. But there was nothing to eat when they came in that they had grown, so obviously that which was there became theirs because the land was then theirs. People have argued that, well, they may have been in the land, but it wasn't their crop. Well, it was when they owned the land. As soon as they owned the land, they owned the crop and everything in it. And Joshua shows, actually, that they did go ahead and eat that year. That can be easily proven. I don't want to go into all that detail today. <clears throat> but they were to take a sheep of the first fruits. Of course, we know that uh, God says those who are first in His kingdom at the resurrection are the first fruits. Very clearly in Revelation 7 and 14, there are 144,000 first fruits. So this was a sheep uh, with many plants, a whole sheep, probably with the ears, the corn, the uh, the grain still on them. And you wave that sheaf before the eternal to be accepted for you. On the morrow, after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, we're going to see that you count 50 from the Sabbath referred to here to the day of Pentecost, and then keep Pentecost. It can't be Passover day, the first day of unleavened bread, it can't be the Sabbath at the end of the Unleavened Bread Week. It has to be the Sabbath during that he's speaking of because you count from this time seven Sabbaths, 49 days it would be, and then the next day is Pentecost. So it has to be the weekly Sabbath within those days, which today is. It isn't a feast day. It's just a regular weekly Sabbath day. Now, if the feast day, if it happened to fall on one of the feast days, then the feast day itself overrides the weekly Sabbath, or both Sabbaths, but the instruction for the specific holy days would override the regular Sabbath, uh, and you would do the things that are supposed to be on that holy day. So anyway, this is the day that the wave sheaf was to be offered before God. Uh, Christ was the Passover who was offered as the ultimate sacrifice for everyone. And then we have other sacrifices offered that we offer to God uh, in our behalf, in that sense. And each of the holy days through the year, uh, they offered different sacrifices for that particular holy day. And they're often different because of the meaning and so on. But this sheep was to be offered on the weekly Sabbath day within. And you shall offer that day when you wave the sheep 
a he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering to the eternal. So this isn't speaking of Christ. He was not a burnt offering. He wasn't put in that kind of fire. He went through an emotional, uh, mental, spiritual, physical fire in terms of the damage done or the heat and pressure put on him, but not, I said physical fire, I didn't mean real physical fire, but the fire of pressure, the fire of pain, that kind of fire. But this is a burnt offering to the eternal, so we offer those offerings to him. He offered his son, we offer ourselves. He gave all. He was willing to die for us. And we, then, should be willing to die for him. He even said we are to love our neighbors ourselves. And there might even be a time when you would die for someone else. I know Marla and I felt that way toward each other. Uh, if I, if I, I saw her suffering in her bed for years, and I would not have gladly taken her place, but I ha- would have willingly taken her place because of the pain and suffering she was going through. And I believe I would have been willing to die for her. I know if somebody had broken into the house and I had to go out and take care of it, I would have been willing to go to battle and die for her uh, in that sense anyway. And she felt the same way. So if we're really, really close with a mate or someone, uh, we might perchance, the Scripture says, be willing to die for a good man. <laughs> and, and a good man's hard to find, so there aren't too many you'd just be willing to die for. Uh, that would have to be somebody pretty special to you. But he died for us, all of us, and we weren't very special. He died for the whole world, ultimately, because his sacrifice will cover all of those who will repent in whatever age or opportunity they have and come to him. So his blood is big enough then for anyone who wants to repent in whatever opportunity or time that comes. But we offer these offerings because we are yet sinners. He died for our sins, but that did not obliterate all sin forever. It obliterated all the sin that had been sinned up until then, but his is a continual sacrifice. Because as human beings, we still make mistakes. We still do things wrong. We think wrong. We do wrong. And we need to go before God and ask that that blood be extended for us again. And day by day, again and again, because we fall short of the glory of God, I would say every day in some form or another. Uh, you mean you can examine your life and maybe you've had some perfect days, but uh, I don't think I can find one where I was perfect all day long. Uh, like I'm pretty sure I couldn't. Uh, I'll have some kind of wrong thought or wrong kind of action or whatever. Um, anytime Satan is there after us, our human nature is there, and... Do I always live up every day to loving every neighbor as myself? We have trouble with keeping every thought and every emotion in control. 
We can fly off at the hand, off at the handle over most anything in traffic, you know, wherever, and maybe think or say things that are selfish and self-centered. Uh, we just aren't perfect. That's all there is to it. And therefore, we have to continually offer our sacrifice of prayer today as opposed to a burnt offering. Christ became the offering, and now we pray toward that offering instead of having to offer lambs or doves or food, meal, whatever. So they were to give offerings before God on this day. Uh, verse 14, And you shall eat neither bread nor parched corn nor green ears until the selfsame day that you have brought an offering unto your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations to all dwellings. So they came into this land, and they were excited, you know. And here were these crops that hadn't been harvested yet in the spring. Here were lambs and cows and goats and all these good things to eat, and they'd been out there in that wilderness, desert, eating manna and quail all for 40 years. And boy, was that exciting to think, here, give me some. But God said, wait, you put me first. Don't you touch any of that for your body until you've brought an offering to me. In other words, show me that I am more important to you than you are to you. Now, that's a consistent principle throughout the Bible. We always put God first in everything we do. We think of Him first. Why? Well, He's the one who made the universe. He's the one who made this orb we live on. He's the one that made every green thing and walking thing that's on it. And He is due the honor of a creator. He did things that we simply cannot do. Man's trying to do all kinds of miracles and create all kinds of things and intelligence that's greater than we are through AI and all that stuff. And it can't be done. And it's all turning wild on them. And it's going to cause a lot of people to die. Read Joel. I think it's in there. About climbing through the windows that can't be killed and so on. Uh, it's robots. It's not just men in armor. And it's described it that way, and I've thought of it that way for many, many years, and now we've got them. <laughs> They've already got some trained as military robots. So this thing is upon us, not far off. But the point here is put God first. He made sure they did that. I'll tell you another good reason to put it first. He is the one who is the key to life and death. He created us, gave us life from Adam and Eve on, set the process in motion, which is an incredible thing. That we can generate others like ourselves. He did the creating. We just do the mechanical part of reproducing with what he gave us. And when we die physically, there is the opportunity, ultimately, for life eternal. Now, that's something that human beings simply want. 
through all ages, through all cultures, there are always behind the scenes is some kind of belief or teaching that there's a tomorrow after we die. And even very pagan cultures will go through all kinds of rigmarole and ritual, uh, bury people with some of their stuff, thinking it'll do them some good on the other side. Uh, it, it takes many, many forms, but it all comes, except the truth, all forms of that come from Satan, the reincarnation thing, and on and on it goes. But God says we're dead until the resurrection, and if we meet his approval, his grace, his forgiveness, then we can live life eternally. I don't want to live forever as a human being. It gets old, you get old, uh, life becomes less than fun sometime after 30, and uh, I want eternal life as a young person. God is the ancient of days. He's been around forever, but he's not old. Uh, he still functions as well as he did a few million years back. And that's the kind of life I want. And it's the kind of life he tells me we can have if we put him first. So this is an important concept here. So after you've brought that, then you can eat of the land. So he, he still lets us enjoying it. How long does it take? Can I, can I give God 15 minutes or an hour here to bring an offering and sacrifice it to him before I eat? Yeah, I would think you could. But most people don't pay any attention to God anymore. I read just this morning that uh, only about 1% of people, I think, it, what was it, under age 20 or 30, believe in a worldview that has God in it. And only 4% of all Americans have a worldview that includes God. We have basically put God out. Now, there are people who say, I believe in God, but they don't know who he is, and he's an ethereal thought, and they don't pray every day, they don't study their Bible every day, they just go to church on Christmas and Easter, or maybe every Sunday, wrong day, but they go. But they don't see God as a being who is alive, who is involved in the affairs of what's going on down here on this earth. So their worldview is rather limited. Some people's worldview involves politics, world news, what's going on. Some people's worldview is just about this big. It's in their back pocket. And that's pretty much their world is that phone or some bigger screen. But that is what they're about. Maybe sports, whatever. But they're not about God. And He is not central to their lives. And they're living their everyday lives. God is not part of the worldview. The worldview is my work, my entertainment, my sleep. But it isn't God. And that's sad, because it used to be more people than that who had God more central to their lives. 
He's not happy with it either. And has some things planned to take care of. Anyway, uh, verse 15, You shall count to you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheep of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. So this is the day this year, the weekly Sabbath, during the Days of Unleavened Bread, that we start counting 50 days until Pentecost. Seven Sabbaths will go by, weekly Sabbaths, and then Pentecost is the 50th day, the Jubilee. Fifty days, and you shall offer a new meal offering unto the Eternal. You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two ten steels. And that gets into Pentecost, and I don't want to go on into that now. But I didn't want today to go by without realizing that this is the day that we start the Pentecost count, or at least from tomorrow, uh, from Sunday. Uh, you got Sunday is the first first day. And uh, Sabbath then is seven days away, times seven, and then the 50th is a Sunday. Always a Sunday because you start from a Sabbath. So, the count is starting. There was another point I wanted to bring in there, and I can't remember what it was. Let's go back then to the book of John one more time. We finished up last time at the end of chapter 20, and I thought since we were in this context, we'd go ahead and finish it on out of the things that Christ did just before his crucifixion and what he did just after, because these are very, very important points for us to consider in our lives, what our Savior did for us, what He did for those around Him, and what He intended to continue to happen. So John 21, after these things that we've already been reading about, Jesus showed Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise He showed Himself. They were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. They weren't all here, but uh, quite a few of them. Now, Simon Peter had said to them, I go a-fishing. Now, this becomes important, uh, this saying of Peter. Peter uttered quite a few things that are worth remembering. Uh, is there anything wrong with fishing? No. Uh, Peter had been a commercial fisherman before Christ called him to be a disciple, as had some of the others. So there's nothing sinful about fishing. Fishing, fish are good to eat, if they're the proper ones. And what was wrong with going fishing? Uh, he had just had all this training directly from Christ himself for three and a half years, and Christ had a job for Peter and the others to do. They didn't grasp that quite. So he had died and come back, gone to heaven to be with his father. And Peter looked around and said, Fishing time, boys. Let's go. So they went. 
Now bear that in mind as we go on through this context, and I think you'll see from some of the things Christ said that that's not really what he wanted Peter to do. Anyway, they went to fishing. They say unto him, We also go with you. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. So they fished all night, caught nothing. Have you ever done that? I have. It's not much fun. (laughs) But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. It must have still been early morning, maybe gray, but not sun not quite up. They couldn't recognize him from a distance away. They weren't too far away, a couple of hundred yards actually. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? It says meat, but uh, means food of various kinds in the Greek. They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you'll find them. They cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fish. One side of the boat, they caught nothing all night long. And then he said, throw it on the other side. And suddenly the net was completely full. That doesn't happen very often. <laughs> I fished both sides of the boat and off the shore for long periods of time and caught nothing a lot of times. And it didn't seem to matter where I went. They just weren't biting. Here there was a net, so whether they were biting or not had nothing to do with it. But there's a lesson here that Christ is teaching them. You follow me, and good things happen. You don't follow me, and not much good happens. Now, they didn't know at that point that that was the lesson that he was giving, I'm sure. But it had to have made some impression. It's been night. It may have been a little chilly. It usually is on the water. been a little cold. And absolutely nothing to take to market, nothing to eat, had happened. And somebody comes along and says, well, fish over here. It's better. And suddenly they can't even pull the net in because it's so full. That had to make an impression. They were bored, frustrated, ready to go home with nothing. And now they're going to realize who it was standing on the beach. And then they could put it together. When he's here, things work better. When we're not with him, when he's not around, pretty tough going sometimes. When the morning was now come, he said, Do you have any food? Nope. (coughs) So they cast on the other side. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, we've seen that all through the book of John, so he's again referring to himself, uh, said to Peter, It is the Lord. I want to make a little more comment. I've done some maybe along the way on this, but John keeps saying, I'm the one he loved, or the one he loved the most, or making comments along those lines. We know scriptures that say God is not partial, and that we should not be partial. 
somebody comes in with fine clothes on, uh, we don't welcome them and sit them on the front row, and somebody comes in in ragged clothes and we say, oh, you're here, and put them in the back row. He says, we don't make distinctions like that, and we are to love all our brothers as ourselves. But does that mean, then, that we can't have favorites? We all have, throughout our lives, had people, some people who are closer to than others. just the way it is. Uh, we have more in common with some people. We have an affinity for each other. Some people you like to talk to or with, and you can sit and talk for hours, and other people, hello, how are you, nice seeing you, is pretty much all you want, um, because your personalities may be different, you may have different views of things, and some people you're just simply going to like. That doesn't mean this person that you like better is any better than this person over here, but somebody else will have an affinity for them. And that's why you have cliques and, and different groups of people who like to get together. And that's not wrong within reason. He says, it's okay to be with your friends, but don't leave the others out. You know, it's somebody you're close to, it's easy to do things with them or to invite them for dinner or whatever because their family or you're close to them or whatever. But he says, don't leave the others out. Uh, invite them time to time. Maybe you spend more time with those you're closest to, but don't leave everybody else. Make sure everybody's included. And that only makes sense. But Christ had John there, who apparently had the same type of personality in some respects that Jesus himself had. He was obviously an affectionate type person. He would lean on, if Christ was leaning against a tree or a rock, he'd come and sit down and lay his head on his chest. And it wasn't a homosexual thing like the idiots try to say. The Bible's very clear on that. It was just, he felt close to him. And they were more prone, in some respects, to touching than Americans are, if you will. Uh... There are still societies on this earth, cultures, where men still kiss each other on the cheek. They still hug each other regularly. And it's not perverted. It's just a cultural thing. And that's the way they were at that time, obviously. And the others didn't feel as comfortable leaning on Christ as John did. So it wasn't like every man was laying across every man. That's not the way it was. But there was an affection there. And Christ was love. He loved everybody. And here was somebody who probably loved people more than most people love people, if you will. And as a result, he was comfortable uh, doing that. And I guess the only one, because it's never mentioned that any of the others did that. So when he didn't want to brag, he didn't want to say, ah, John was the number one, uh, but he had a closeness there, and it was okay. It was okay. It was okay with Christ, with John, and to some degree with the other disciples. 
You see some jealousies here and there a little bit. But when it came time to find out something from Jesus, they would say, you ask him. They were a little afraid, but he had a little bit of an inside track. Follow us to it. He talked to him easier than the others did. And that's normal. I mean, there are some people you can talk to very easily. You feel comfortable talking with them. And the other people, you're a little on edge. I don't know how to approach them. I don't know quite what to say. I don't want to offend them. Um, you're just different than they are. <coughs> and you find it a little hard to talk to them. And then there are others that you find are fairly easy to talk to. We all experience these things. But there's no criticism of Christ here. Or of John, they just got along easily. So when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his father's coat to him, for he was naked. Fishing is a dirty job; uh, it's a smelly job, and uh, he was out there. It must not have been too cold. He didn't have any clothes on, if any. Men fishing in the dark. Things were a little different then. I, I don't remember ever going fishing in, in the dark with a bunch of men and everybody pulled their clothes off. Uh, sounds strange to me. But in that day and time, that's what he was doing. Uh, and did cast himself into the sea. So when he heard that it was Christ on shore, Peter just jumped in and going to go swim see him. He wasn't going to wait to land the boat. It was a fairly good-sized boat to have seven, eight men in it. And the other disciples came in a little ship. For they were not far from land, but as it were, 200 cubits, uh, 18 inches times 200, dragging the net with fishes. And it was slow going because they had so many fish that it slowed the boat down. Uh, and soon then, as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. So Christ himself already had some fish, he already had some bread, he built a fire, and he was ready and waiting for them. He was a servant, he was willing to share, to give, to help. Uh, he had some correction to give them, but he also loved them, and was going to feed them first. So that showed the kind of, of character he had. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, Bring of the fish which you have now caught. So maybe he didn't have enough to feed everybody. He was going to throw a couple more on there. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, 153. Now if they were pretty good sized fish, that's a haul. Uh, I, we caught a lot of kokanee salmon. They're about that long. Weigh four, five, six pounds apiece, something like that. Seven, eight sometimes or bigger. 153 of those about sink your boat. Uh, and to drag them in a net behind the boat, you needed a pretty good motor to drag that much even. That, that's a lot of weight. 
And for all, there were so many, yet was not the net broken. So that was a lot of fish, obviously, for the size net they had in their normal fishing operation. It would have been smaller. I've, I've caught fish in 100-foot nets in Alaska, and, and those six, seven, eight-pound fish would get their gills hung, and there they were until you came and pulled them out of the net or brought the net in. But then the king salmon ran quite a bit bigger, and there were times when they would just go right through the net. Just Those are strong nylon nets, and they could go right through. I caught one 75-pounder one time by the gills, and uh, it didn't break the net. We were able to bring it in. But uh, those are unusual. You don't catch many that big, but they, they run 40, 50, 60 pounds pretty often. So they had a, a pretty good haul here. Verse 12, he says to them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. So they were kind of cagey here, kind of walking in a little circle around uh, or whatever. They knew it was the Lord. They knew he had died and been resurrected and he'd come back. And they were a little hesitant. And that shows you the difference between them and John, who was not hesitant. Or Peter, who in his Zeal just jumped out of the boat and swam to shore. Jesus then comes and takes bread and gives them, and fish likewise. This is now the third time that he showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. He said to them, I won't see you much anymore until I come back in glory. But that didn't mean that he would not come back here and there and show himself to a few people. Uh... Paul being the main one who he came back and taught for three and a half years. Not in his glory, he just came and appeared as a human uh, and taught Paul. So, there have been times that he's done that, and he may again here before the complete end of this age. I'll be surprised if he doesn't. Because that is the president he set, and he works in patterns. So when they had dined, he wanted to have a little talk. Now they were all there, and they were all subject to what he's about to say. They were all his disciples he had called. He was going to make them all apostles. He had already told Peter, I'm going to make you the lead dog. You'll be the, the leading apostle, uh, and you better not institute anything that I haven't, or whatever you do, it better be done in heaven. You don't have the authority to make decisions apart from my word. So he had already made that clear to him. <coughs> but now there was another lesson that Peter is the leader, got addressed here, so the, the pressure is on Peter, but it was meant for everybody. When they died, he said to Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me more than these? Anybody around the disciples, whoever might be in public, do you love me more than anyone else? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, 
feed my lambs. I want proof that you love me. Now remember, this is the same guy that not long before this, just a few days really, had denied Christ three times. And then the rooster crowed, just like Christ said would happen. So here was somebody who was not yet truly converted. He knew Christ, he'd lived with him for three and a half years, been taught by him, and yet he did not have the Holy Spirit living within him. So he didn't fully, truly understand. There are things the Spirit of God dwelling in you with a begettle that you can understand that the person on the street doesn't get. They're not tuned to God in his way of thinking, and therefore they can't think that way. And they are, by nature, opposed to the truth. <coughs> anything about the Bible, anything about God, most people, and today's a good example, uh, don't want anything to do with it. In fact, they've got a huge movement on to get rid of God and the Bible and everything else to do with religion. Gone. And now if you're a transvestite or some kind or gender 67, uh, that's fine. You can be that and let's promote it and let's kill Christians. And that's, you hear that rhetoric now from people even in high politics. It's not just something done somewhere that nobody knows about. So he wanted... Peter and the disciples know that they had a responsibility. Now, he waited until they went fishing. He had trained them for a specific job, and they decided, let's go fishing. Nothing else going on today. They didn't grasp truly what he meant and what he wanted. Now, this wasn't far from Pentecost, because it came 50 days after the Sabbath during Passover that year too. And he was going to give his spirit on Pentecost, as it shows in Acts 2. And from there, Peter and John and the other disciples became very powerful men, powerful speakers, <coughs> unafraid of the Pharisees or the Romans. The Spirit of God changed them, in other words. Now, Peter and these guys were still thinking of themselves and, okay, let's fish. Now, he's giving them a different direction. You were just fishing, and I've just fed you, and lo and behold, you know, I had fish, and I had bread here, and fire, and I didn't need to go fish to get it. I had it. I have everything you need. That's the message in the Bible. God has everything we need. Even said of the promised land, it will have everything you need. So, he gave them more fish than they needed. So they couldn't complain at this point to him, well, what are we going to eat? He had fish for them and bread, and now they had a great big pile of fish on the beach. So, he was showing them, I can supply your needs. Oh, you got some more fish? You're real hungry? Okay, you worked all night. Bring a few more. But I can feed you. And what I want you to do is feed my lambs. 
If you love me, feed my lambs. What had he just trained him to do? To minister to a church that was about to begin. That's what he had trained him to do. Feed my lambs. Now this was going to be a new church. Hadn't been before. It had Israel in the Old Testament. But the church of God had not begun, except the church in the wilderness, the congregation there. So he was about to begin the New Testament church, and they would all be brand new people. Lambs. Just learning. Just starting. You know, when you have lambs, they have to manage to get up somehow and find the correct end of mama and get something in them in order to live. And they're totally dependent, any baby born is. But we are considered sheep by God a lot, his flock of the shepherd. So they would have been brand new Christians that these men were to go work with. And you feed lambs and sheep differently. Lambs have to have mama, and if mama dies, uh, or you have a uh, an orphan, you got to feed it with a bottle yourself. you got to take care of it or it'll die. And when you have new converts, new Christians, if they aren't fed the things of God, they don't last long. They die. Herbert Armstrong recognized that way back when he was in Oregon. He would go out and have these little campaigns and preach truth about the Sabbath and different things. And people would accept it. And they'd start saying, okay, we're going to start doing this. But after he'd go back to Portland, uh, it would all fall apart because there was not someone there to feed the lambs. And sheep are a good example of that. Because they can't take care of themselves. They're easy prey for coyotes or wolves or uh, different things that happen. They can't really survive on their own. So feed my lambs. So he said, yeah, I love you. So, okay, feed my lambs. Prove it. He says to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my sheep. So this was something that was to continue. When the church was brand new there in Acts 2, those were lambs. And as time went by, they grew and they became sheep. So he says, now that the lamb's off the bottle, if you will, uh, don't go fishing, feed my sheep. Keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? Peter was grieved. <laughs> this is getting old. No, this is the third time you've asked me the same question. Come on, I already told you, was what he was kind of thinking in the back of his mind. He didn't say it, but he was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. Uh, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And Christ did indeed love him. But he had a job for him to do, and he wanted to make this very explicit, this job you are to do, and you're to continue to do, and you're not to quit. 
because that shows that you love me because that's what I need done. And if that's what I need done, then you need to do it. I've trained you to, so go do it. <clears throat> Maybe Peter, by that point, was getting to the place where he was beginning to think, you know, I used to fish. What I like to do was fish. Now I better like feeding Christ's lambs. I better make a transition here. And when the day of Pentecost came a few days later and the Holy Spirit came to them, he fully comprehended at that point. And he gave powerful sermons. And people were drawn by the thousands. So, he learned something here. Kind of reminds me of the uh, the movie The Fiddler on the Roof, if you've seen it. Uh, the old fellow was talking, singing to his wife about, do you love me? And she wouldn't really answer directly. For 29 years, I've washed your clothes, went on and on. And uh, then he'd say, but do you love me? And then she'd say some other things she'd done for him. She finally, at the end of the song, said, oh, I guess I love you. Kind of had to pull it out of her. <laughs> they apparently didn't tell each other that every day. Uh, I, I like it when people do, but they didn't do that every day. And he had to kind of pull it out of Peter here to make sure Peter got the point. Now what about us? If he calls us as his sheep, as his lambs, what was Peter supposed to tell those lambs that were there then? Serve God, worship him, live like he does, walk as Jesus walked, talk as Jesus talked, and do the things that he did. That's what he had taught Peter. And now Peter was to go out and teach them those same things. So as Peter was supposed to do that, now we are supposed to do that and not give up, not say, oh, I'm tired of this thing. I think I'll go fishing. I think I'll do that. Do this. No, that doesn't mean you can't go fishing once in a while. It's okay to go fishing for a day or two or three or five, whatever. But that isn't your goal. It isn't your purpose. It isn't what you're doing. But even if you're not, let's say, in the ministry you still have the responsibility to live and do as Christ did. So if you go fishing, you comport yourself at the beach or in the boat the same way there you would at home, like Christ would do it. He didn't go to the beach and have a drunken orgy. And neither did Peter and Paul and James and John. And some people do today, and they'll want you to join them. I remember in Alaska when we went <clears throat> moose hunting at that one place, there was a landing strip out there that the military had made for World War II. Uh, you could fly in there in a bush plane uh, and basically have your gun and your backpack and some food and get out, and then you had to go hunting on your own, and the bush plane was supposed to come back at a given day if the weather permitted and pick you up before your meat spoils. But these guys, since it was a military land strip at one time, there wasn't anything out there but some old military houses, they were empty and decrepit. 
they hired a C-130, a pretty good-sized transport plane. And there were four of them, and they had four big four-wheelers, four men, a stack of beer taller than I am, about that square, and cases and cases of different kinds of hard liquor, and a huge tent, uh, almost, well, on a circus tent, but it's a big tent. And uh, they could all stand up completely in it and walk around and whatever they did in that tent. Now, I'll give them this. Every morning, they got up and got on those four-wheelers and went moose hunting. They also had a portable, uh, not greenhouse, but a screened building that they could hang their meat in and keep the flies off of. I mean, they had everything you could imagine. They could scram in that C-130 and then the back let down and they could drive those things back in when they were done. Now, they wanted me to come party with them. I was there to hunt. <laughs> well, they hunted too. But I wasn't there to party and hunt. So I didn't join them. Not even once. Uh, that's not what I was there for. I wanted time in the wilderness for a couple weeks to be away from people, not with people, unless I had my son or somebody with me. I wanted to be alone. And even when I hunted with my sons, uh, they'd go one way and I'd go the other way, mostly. And I had a lot of time. I could sit on a mountain and watch the caribou and pray, think, uh, meditate. It was time I treasured. So I could be with God in a way, you know, Christ often went off into the mountains to pray because he could be alone. Maybe he didn't spend two weeks out. He didn't have time, but uh, back then I wasn't in the ministry anyway. And it's, it's still not wrong to do those things. But let's not do them the way man does them with the big party and we're here to drink. Uh, we're here to do it the way Christ would do it. And then you got to figure out how would Christ do it. But I don't think he'd have gotten drunk every night. I don't think he would have. I know he wouldn't have. So he's trying to train them to feed the sheep what the sheep need, to live like Christ did, and hopefully the sheep will do the same thing. So you may have a varied life. You may work. You may have, if you're retired, you may can go here, go there, visit relatives, fishing, whatever you want to do. You can do those things, but you're always obligated to live like Christ would live. That's just what we're here for. So that if we learn to live like he does, if we're made eternal and immortal, we'll fit right in. Of course, there'll be some upgrades, obviously, over what we are today, but that's a different subject. But he wanted to be sure that his disciples were going to take care of what they were responsible for. So anyway, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, he's talking to Peter here now again, when you were young, you girded yourself, you put your own clothes on, uh, and walked where you would. But when you be old, you shall stretch forth your hands, and another shall gird you, 
and carry you where you would not want to go. That doesn't mean he's in a nursing home. He explains what he meant. This spoke he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. So two messages here. Feed my sheep and follow me. And you're, you're going to die doing it. He let him know. This is the manner in which you'll die. So he had to have from Peter the assurance that Peter would follow him even to the death. That God and Christ were the most important thing. And in the feeding of the sheep, he would be persecuted by the world. He would be hated by the Pharisees, as obviously they were. And sooner or later, they would kill him. And he was supposed to die to the glory of God. You know, there are a lot of ways to die. Dying to the glory of God would be the best way, wouldn't it? I mean, you can be killed in a car accident. You can die of some disease. Somebody can kill you. There can be a lot of ways you can die as a human being. But if you're doing service to God helping him with his plan, and you die in the course of that because of that, that is a glory and an honor to God, and that will be rewarded greatly in the world tomorrow. What a good way to go. But follow me. Do as I did. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren, that that disciple should not die. Oh, wait a minute. He's, I, I skipped down. Go back to verse 20. Christ told him, follow me. Well, Peter had something else in mind here. He was a little jealous. He was wondering about John. You tell me I'm going to die? Let's read on. Peter, turning about, sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following. So John's right there with him, which also leaned on his breast at the Passover supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrays you? Am I going to betray you? Is, oh, no, is, Judas is the one that, John is the one, let me get this straight. Judas was there and the disciples asked, which one's going to betray Christ? And they asked John to ask Christ, who's it going to be? And he says, it's the one I give the sop, which he gave to Judas there. So that's what he's saying here. He's, he's reminding him. Peter, seeing him say to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? Oh, so I'm going to die. Well, what about John? He's your favorite. There was a little bit of envy here, a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of what about him? Is he going to get off free and I have to die? Jesus said to him, If I will that he tarry till I come back, what's that to you? Follow you me. Peter, quit taking this off another direction. Focus here, would you? Come on, focus. Follow me. Don't worry about John. I already told you what I'm going to do with you. What I do with John, none of your business. That's my business. Or any of the disciples. 
How come he got to be a deacon? How come he's a local elder? Why not me? We had that over and over and over for decades in the church. People trying to climb the, rap, climb the ladder, trying to be in office, trying to seem important so they could act important and kind of walk around, you know, uh, I'm the elder. It's nauseating, but we had a lot of it. It's just human nature. It was Peter's nature. So he had to, he had to make him focus there carefully three times about feeding the sheep. Now you got this, let's go on to the next. Follow me. Okay, I, oh, I'm gonna die. But what about John? Look, Peter, follow me. Now that's what he wants of each of us. We're not to envy each other. We're not to compare ourselves among ourselves, which we tend to do. <clears throat> and it says in Scripture, it's not wise. You have a relationship with Christ and the Father. That relationship is what you focus on, not somebody else's state. Because if we judge somebody else there, generally we'll feel like we're a little better than them somehow. Um, we tend to look down on somebody else instead of up to somebody else. But everybody has redeeming qualities and they have good about them. And we're supposed to look for the good, Philippians 4.8, and not for the bad. And if you would judge somebody having problems or being bad, you're going to put yourself a little above that some way. Well, I may be this, but I'm not that. I'm a Pharisee that you love. I'm not like that publican. We have a personal relationship there to develop. And Christ is making it very clear here that it's one-on-one -on -one with him and with the Father. And what he does with you, 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 or you makes no difference to you. It's between you and him. You will either be part of his kingdom or you won't. And how good somebody else was compared to you won't make a bit of difference when that judgment is made. So he says, don't do that. Quit worrying about John and follow me. Then went this saying abroad uh, about who was going to die and who wasn't. <laughs> Uh, this is the disciple which testifies of these things and wrote these things. So it's again John finishing the story. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things <coughs> which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. This is a very, very abridged version of all that Christ did. A very abridged of what's happened since Adam and Eve on down to today and what's about to happen. There's, there's really not that much here. If you consider maybe 60 billion people have lived and uh, so on and so forth. And some people that are pretty, pretty important didn't get much script. Very little said about them, like Enoch. Uh, very little said, and yet he's going to be part of the kingdom of God. And there was a lot that 
Enoch thought, said, and did in following Christ and the Father that we don't know about. So, he's done many, many things when he does things in your life and my life. And we follow him. And then the example here is very clear, that we're to follow him and we're to care about his sheep. Whether we're a minister, lay member, doesn't matter. We're to love each other as ourselves and love God above any and everything. That's the basis and the summation and the totality of Christianity. You love everybody as you love yourself and you love God above everything, then you're going to do all the things that He does and live as He lived and talk as He thought. And you'll be in the kingdom of God. So we're here during these days of unleavened bread in a time of pictures putting sin out of our lives because as He says, if you love Me, keep My commandments. So love is equated with commandment keeping. You can't love Him unless you keep His commandments. And that's what defines love. is how we treat each other according to His commands and how we treat Him according to His commands. Idolatry is the first one. Don't put anything ahead of Him. Anything that is illegal down here that we choose to do that's contrary to His Word becomes idolatry because we're putting it, whatever it is we want to do, ahead of Him. You can't do that. So, what do people do? They give lip service to God, do what they want, and they're hypocrites. That's what the Pharisees did. Oh yeah, we love God, we love God, but I'm stealing my house from my widowed mother. They did stuff like that. And Christ called them hypocrites and snakes and so on. So we're to sincerely serve God in every way, day and night, as best we can to love Him and love each other. Bottom line. So let's stop.